Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the 118th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. It's great to have you back, buddy. Beginning of Q4. Yeah, sorry about that. It's uh, it's wedding season right now, so had to uh, go to a couple of weddings actually last weekend. So that we're not in Dayton. So yep. Well, I missed you. Fun. Yeah. Well, I missed you too. Nick Nick was a, was a, was a great guest. We did. A, I think we had a wonderful podcast one seventeen last week. I said it about Aaron. I'll say it about Nick. People might start wanting them on more more than me and me. Might get replaced and me. Might both get replaced. <laughs> Got to give the people what they want. That's right. Um, so before we begin, as always, uh, I just want to take a first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on October 4th. So not a whole lot of data for the month, but, uh, we'll give you what we have so far. S&P 500 index is virtually flat for the month of October and up 14.5% for the year. The Dow up 0.33% for the month and up 10.95% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index down 5.6% for the month and up 12.1% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 0.7% for the month and up 12.3% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, down 0.8% for the month and up 4.3% for the year. Three-month T-bill yield is 0.04%. Two-year Treasury is yielding 0.28%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.46%. Moving on to news headlines and current events from the week, Matt, Congress and the Biden administration still do not have an agreement on the debt ceiling, which the Treasury Department warned uh, it would run out of money by October 18th. I feel like this is a common thing every year and it's just it's like gotten to the point where it's like like the boy who cried wolf like people keep making a huge deal about this every single year and nothing seems to come of it because they just extend it they eventually come to an agreement and we go on as life is normal yeah I mean last week into the podcast Mark uh, Nick was reporting that they had an agreement that pushed it out kicked the can till December 3rd And I joked with him, I'm like, oh, perfect. So what do you think everyone's going to be talking about around the Thanksgiving dinner table, Mm -hmm. right? And then that didn't happen. You know, do I think they're going to come to some agreement before the 18th? I I do. But obviously, this political posturing is not good for the market short term. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think it provides a quote unquote excuse for some market volatility that we haven't seen in a while. And in my opinion, possibly could provide a a decent buying opportunity if that's right waiting for a pullback yeah um marvel technology ceo um said that the chip shortage could potentially last through 2022 and marvel is a, a semiconductor company yeah um so this i mean this doesn't surprise me i mean our I guess if if people haven't already realized that, you know, we are so dependent on semiconductors in our technological age right now that 
pretty much virtually everything that we use has chips in it, right? And, you know, the demand for all this stuff is sky high. And with the supply constraints, you know, it, people haven't been able to, to get the necessary chips that they need and prices have gone up. Uh, I will point out that Barron's uh, over the weekend or last week, I think, I think you sent it to me over and the weekend. Nick, um, their cover story was the supply constraints and the cargo ships all over, you know, sitting out in the sea waiting to, to come to land um, might signal that supply constraints could be getting better coming up here. Yeah, you know, I like to use those front page headlines on publications like Barron's Mark as the top or bottom in a specific topic or trend. And, you know, usually when it hits the, the cover of Barron's, usually it's baked in, priced in, you're at a peak. Right. So we'll see if the Barron's cover, um, you know, Headlines. headline continues to be the top or bottom. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, if you go back and look at it, like back in 07 and 08, you know, when they had the front page of, you know, the housing crash and that things were doom and gloom and never going to get better, it was like within that week. Like it was the that market, time The market buy. bottomed or yeah. something, right? Yeah. So just interesting to, to see. Um, on Monday, OPEC uh, and the ministers uh, ratified the 400,000 barrel a day output increase scheduled for November to combat the highest oil prices that we've seen since 2014. And can you just give people just a little taste of you know what OPEC is if they don't know who yeah. OPEC is? So listeners, OPEC is a consortium of a lot of oil producing countries that this um, organization was very powerful in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, before really oil production in Russia and the U.S. became more and more. And so this is mainly Middle Eastern countries um, and, and a few others that come together and make joint decisions on mainly the output, um, how much they're going to produce of oil. Mm -hmm. And so what they're attempting to do is they're being very opportunistic and they're going to produce more, I think it's in their best interest because the old saying is, what's the cure for high oil prices? High Higher oil, oil prices. prices. Yeah. Because what happens is, is you get more capital investments and eventually the supply becomes greater uh, because the investment break even makes sense at that point. Right. So I think this, this is them trying to slow down these price increases that we're seeing. And now again, you know, you're seeing people travel. You know, you're seeing a lot of jet A fuel being used. You know, um, ultimately, I do think there's going to be some demand there. And I think the U.S. here, we're going to have to start producing more. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Uh, last but not least, uh, U.S. factory orders climbed 1.2 percent in August, as projected after increases of 0.7 percent in July and 1.5 percent in June. And this is a fourth straight monthly gain in orders um, and 15th gain in the last 16 months. That's not bearish. No, no, it's a good sign. Uh, moving on to the tweets, articles, and research from the week. Uh, the first thing that caught my eye uh, came from a blog post written by Morgan Housel titled, A Number from Today and a Story About Tomorrow. And this kind of goes back, Mac, to your topic two weeks ago when you talked about Stocks not making sense from a valuation and academic standpoint. Yes, sir. Um, so I just wanted to read a couple of things from this. He said, every forecast takes a number from today 
and multiplies it by a story about tomorrow. Investment valuations, economic outlooks, political forecasts, they all follow that formula. Something we know multiplied by a story we like. The trick when forecasting is realizing that's what you're doing. And we're going to start to see forecasts for 2022, I'm sure, uh, at the tail end of the fourth quarter here come out. So just keep that in mind. We're going to see that. But I'll throw this out there. Most were very low compared to where the market's at today. Yeah, I agree. For this year. So they were way off. Um, The hard thing is that while the number we know today can be something real and verified, the story we multiply it by is driven but by what you want to believe or what will make the most sense. Forecasters get into trouble when the number we know from today gives us an impression that you're being objective and data-driven when the story about tomorrow is subject to opinion. When valuing a company, revenue, cash flow, profits is the number we know. The earnings multiple you attach to that figure is just a story about future growth. So that's like one of the things that, you know, that I want to point out is that when people see all these like analysts forecast, they're coming up with that multiple on what they think it's going to be. And I'm sure that they have, you know, several calculations, but it is really just a forecast, right? It's not, you you can't look at something and be like, this is what it's going to be. (laughs) Right. Um, So he wraps up and says, same with economic trends. We have lots of data, but none of it means much until you attach a story to it about what you think it means and what you think people will do with it next. This is called investing. Yeah. So I just think that that's that's how markets work. It's it's, you know, you know, the company multiplied by the story that people want to believe. You know, we've talked about this several times before, but. If you have a good CEO who's the founder of a company and they can tell a good story, they get people to buy into that story, whether it's true or not. Yes. You know, so, you know, you just got to keep that in mind. And, you know, it's hard to keep your own bias out of it. Right. Because if you believe so much in company X, Y, Z, you know, you're not going to look at the negative side of it or what are the potential risks to this company? Yeah. In addition, Mark, I'd say that a lot of those shareholders that follow those types of leaders, they have stronger hands. And so when you have weakness in the market, they're less apt to sell because they believe in that person. Mm -hmm. You know, use the football analogy. You know, if your team's down and you really believe in your quarterback, you know, you're going to have faith that they're going to pull it off. Mm-hmm. And I think it's no different in the investment world with the CEOs. When you have weakness in the markets, I'm going to hold that stock because I believe in what he or she has been doing and what their future is. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, he said it perfectly. That's what's called investing. Um, the next one was a blog post written by Ben Carlson titled why U S housing prices aren't as crazy as you may think. And This one was kind of caught me off guard because I guess I just I don't I mean, why would I pay attention to housing prices in other areas but the U.S.? But this was kind of interesting. He says the housing market continues to set new records. The S&P CoreLogic Case Shiller U.S. National Home Price Index just reported its highest one year gain in history, up nearly 19 percent through the end of June. These gains are obviously abnormal and can't last forever. However, I remain firmly entrenched in the camp that this is not another housing bubble. There are structural and market forces that are causing these price gains, even if it all feels out of hand. 
You have household formation among the biggest demographic, millennials, generationally low interest rates, constrained supply from lack of home building following the housing crash, and a pandemic that induced people to buy. But there's another reason the housing market isn't as crazy as you think. Housing prices in the rest of the developed world have outpaced U.S. prices for some time now. The Dallas Federal Reserve has housing data going back to 1975 for developed markets around the globe. These are the price gains for Australia, Canada, France, the United Kingdom, and the United States. This works out to annual appreciation rates of 7.6%, 7.4%, 6.3%, and 5.7% for Australia, the UK, Canada, and France, respectively. Housing price gains in the U.S. look quaint by a comparison of just 4.6% per year. And if people go to our show notes um, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or Facebook, uh, Jessup Wealth Management or on LinkedIn at Jessup Wealth Management, you'll be able to see these charts in this article. And I think this does it better justice than by me just telling you the stats here. Um, he says, of course, there are differences in these markets by population, demographics, cities, housing availability, economics, interest rates, etc. It's hard to make an apples to apples comparison. Perhaps the best way to level the playing field is to look at these gains on an inflation adjusted basis. On a real basis, the gains in the U.S. housing market look even more muted than they've been um, in these other countries. Uh, and it just goes to show, you know, real housing prices from 1975 to 2021. Um, in that time period, Australia's are up 324 percent, the U.K. up 279 percent, Canada up 278 percent. France up 179% and the U.S. up just 99%. Wow. On an inflation-adjusted basis. Wow. Uh, maybe and that includes the high inflationary period in the late 70s and early 80s. It does. It does. All right. So he says, maybe housing price gains in the U.S. make more sense when you consider them on a relative basis. Does the U.S. really look like a crazy speculative bubble when compared to these other housing markets? What if we still have some more catching up to do? Just throwing it out there interesting take so i think it's a really interesting take because again i think everyone's pounding the table on you know we're going to have a market crash in housing and eventually our price is going to come down yeah but who's to say when that's going to be now i remember back in you know oh five oh six oh seven they were building like drunken sailors mm -hmm. and you're just not seeing the the starts the the, the new building like you did back then especially at the cost of these raw materials right now. And so with that being said, I do think that, you know, supply is going to be constrained for some time. I'm grinning just because I'm going to mention that in my next article. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. If anyone wants a uh, someone who's going to tell you what's happened, they should come talk to you. <laughs> You're like a mind reader. I had no idea you were going to talk about that. So uh, staying on the housing topic, the next one is from Ben Carlson again, titled The Death of the Starter Home. Are you, this is hilarious. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, home builders aren't making new houses that sell for 200000 or under anymore. Thus, the starter home is dead. At first glance, it would be hard to argue with this conclusion. After look, looking under the hood, my conclusion is somewhat more mixed. New home sales at 200000 and under were as high as 60% of total new houses sold in 2002. 
in July of this year, that cohort accounted for just 2% of new home sales. New home New homes of half a million dollars and up were just 3% of sales in 2002, but nearly 30% of sales in June of this year. There's an obvious trend of new homes being built at higher price points. There are a few explanations for this trend. For one, there were simply more houses being built back then. This number is finally creeping higher, but is still well below the early 2000s boom. The higher price point for new homes is also being driven by the experience home builders had following the housing market crash. Builders went overboard in the housing bubble and were left holding the bag. <laughs> and there's and he says there's still lingering scars. And I think this is true. This is something that people aren't like talking about a lot. But, you know, home builders remember what happened back then. And oh, they're yeah. going to be ultra conservative going forward with Even this. Even in this craziness, you rarely see a spec home. Yeah rarely see a spec home yeah and you know i when i was going through the new mortgage process for our new house you know i was frustrated with the process i was like you know i felt like i was in a good financial position compared to a lot of other people applying for mortgages and they still wanted my arm and my left pinky toe off my foot and daily blood draws yeah um but then you know after calming down and taking my emotion out of it, I'm like, I get it. You know, people that had, you know, low 600 credit scores were getting million dollar homes back then with no uh, income verification. Right. With, you know, that to income levels that were stupid. So I understand why it is the way it is. You just got to take the emotion out of it when you're going through that process yourself. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I had this conversation a couple of months ago with a local home builder in the Dayton area. And I, we talked about how, you know, the lower end homes, uh, price points were just not being built in the, in our area. And I propose that there needs to be some sort of private and public partnership where, for example, you take some of these areas in the city of Dayton where they've demolished homes and now you just have land that they go in and it's like a joint venture between a builder in the city, they do a whole street at a time, they provide down payment assistance, and you really start developing these entry-level homes again. And it was an interesting conversation. I don't know, it was just something I think that needs to happen. Yeah, well, I think it's good that, you know, this article is, you know, it's related to our local area as well. Yeah. You know, it's not just big, big cities. Yeah. Um, it makes sense that home builders have moved up to higher price point homes that have better margins and buyers with higher credit scores. The 200,000 to 400,000 range of new home sales averaged 35% of the total in 2002. So far in 2021, it's more like 54%. Unfortunately for new home buyers, that might be the updated threshold for a new build. There's also a huge factor in play that we simply can't ignore in this equation, mortgage rates. The average 30-year fixed mortgage rate in 2002 was 6.5%. This year, the average is 2.9%. This makes an enormous difference in monthly payments. Could you imagine people getting a 6.5% mortgage in today and what the attitude would be about that? Oh, my God. People would freak out. Yes, they would. <laughs> I remember people that were getting VAs in 2000 because you get a lower rate, and it was 7%, and that was considered a good rate. Yeah. It's crazy. Just, you know. 20 years later. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, monthly payments are almost 35% lower at today's interest rate levels versus the rates in 2002. 
of course prices are going to be higher. So this is this is really interesting. Rates have uh, allowed buyers to move up their price points. Yes, taxes and down payments are higher too, but lower mortgage rates have allowed home buyers to build pricier homes with little to no inflation in their monthly payments. People can afford more home at today's rates. The monthly payment for a $400,000 house is now lower than the monthly payment for a $300,000 house in 2002. If we take this to the extreme, the monthly payment for a million-dollar home is now $520 lower than the monthly payment for a $750,000 home in 2002. And that's definitely adding to it. Yeah, that's adding to it. And I, you know, again, we've talked about this before, but this has been a massive cause of this. You know, just when people have, you know, the ability to borrow money at, at cheaper rates, they can afford more expensive things, right? Yep. So there's a whole chart on this, too, if you want to go check out this article on our show notes as well. Um, This doesn't necessarily mean the starter home is dead. It just means those looking for a new starter home at lower prices are going to have to adjust their expectations, and they're likely going to be buying an existing home rather than a new build. Louis not happy about that. No, he's not happy about that. Um, So... I don't know. I just thought I just thought that that was that was really interesting because there's so many factors at play here. But when you look at this on an objective basis, this all makes sense. And, you know, I know people are going nuts with, you know, how they think housing prices are way overvalued. But just reading that article and reading the data, like it kind of makes sense to people why things are the way they are right now. Yeah. And uh, I was talking to one of our clients last night, Mark, and they were bidding on a, on a property. There were three competing bids and they felt to get that they had to come in at over asking. So that's still happening right now as of yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I talked to a client yesterday too. Same thing. Same thing. They had eight offers within like a three hour period or still something happening. like that. All cash. Still happening. Yep. Crazy. Uh, I'll turn it over to you. I got some good ones this week. I know. I know. You always have some good ones. I, I'm, I'm locked and loaded. So. Still waiting for you to tell me you have a bad one. I'm locked and loaded. <laughs> okay. All right, listeners. First one I have is seasonality stats from top down charts. Now, this note is from October 3rd, Mark. So for September, the S&P 500 index posted a return of negative 4.65%. Let's just face it. It was not a good September. Now, why was it down? You could sit there and blame market worries such as Evergrande, the debt ceiling, tax hikes, the Fed taper, rising yields, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why it's just like, you know, at least for me, all I need to know is that the market was down 4.65%. Doesn't really matter why. Yes. (laughs) Correct. It was just, it is what it is. It was down down. 4.6%. So one thing that stands out at me is top-down charts in their research note has monthly stats for the S&P 500 index going back to 1964. Okay, Mark? Now, it shows that for the month of October, the average return is 0.9%. The average for November is 1.4. And the average for December is 1.3. But here's the thing I want to throw out there. October has the largest standard deviation and the most kind of movement. So the worst um, October in history was negative 22 percent. 
and the best was positive 16. So, you know, historically, listeners, October is a more volatile month, up and down. Well, that was the, what was Black Monday was in October, wasn't it? It was, sir. Yeah, okay. So, again, it's nice uh, to see how, um, you know, these numbers, we're going to be going into this seasonally strong period when you look at history. Yeah. Now, you have any other comments on no, this? Because I got, no, no, I got no. another one here. No. Okay. So my next point is I have a big surprise about flows, meaning money going into or out of stocks and bonds. Now, this is going to be data that is from also top down charts from their October 3rd research note. There's going to be a chart in our show notes, Mark, that is from the Investment Company Institute. It goes back to 2009 and it shows the flows from exchange traded funds and mutual funds into bond specific investments into stock specific investments. I was surprised. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what this chart indicates is that still the money going into bonds is continuing to go up and stock ETF and mutual funds is very muted, very muted. And I'm curious, Mark, about your opinion about this, because what do you think is going to happen when the Fed eventually does raise rates? People have not really experienced a multi-year bear market in bonds in well over a decade. Mm -hmm. They're not used to losing money in <clears> bonds. <throat> yeah. And with all this money that's been flowing into bond funds, especially by this chart, the last three or four years, I think people are in for a rude awakening. Well, yeah, I think that if you're a bond or, or excuse me, if you're in the camp that interest rates are going to go up over the next couple of years, then it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to own bonds right now because, you know, there's that inverse relationship. So if people are buying now at bonds, locking, locking in an interest rate for the next however many, two, five, ten years and interest rates go up then your bond isn't going to be worth as much as new bonds issued at the higher interest rates, right? So they're going to dump that and then go out and, you know, that's a process that I don't want to get into today. But yeah, I, you know, and, and it goes to show you that, you know, flows are not directly correlated with performance. That's a great over the, point. Over the long term. Great point. You know, I just think that, you know, I think there's a perception in the market that these two are flipped. Mm -hmm. That all the money's flowing into stock ETFs and mutual funds and not as much into bonds. And when you look at the raw data, it's not telling you that. No, no. Nope. I found it very interesting. Now, I got something for you. An update on the IPO market. Now, before I continue, Mark, explain to listeners, what is an IPO? So IPO stands for Initial Public Offering, and that's when you have a private company um, that the general public hasn't been able to invest to goes public, trades on a stock exchange, and the general public can buy shares of that company or buy ownership of that company. So, you know, the big ones over the past two decades have been, you know, Facebook going public, um, Google, Google. Um, so, you know, when companies are started, when they're startups, it's a private company, right? Yep. And the general public doesn't have access to that. But, you know, once they start trading on an exchange, then, you know, anyone in America can go out and buy shares of that company. There you go. Thank you, sir. So 
there was a post um, I saw on Twitter, and it's from Bullish Rippers <laughs> is the is the is the name of the of the, of the Twitter handle. That's and, a, you do pick uh, good tweets with big uh, good Twitter names. That's thank for sure. you, yeah. thank you. Bullish Rippers, Bullish Rippers. So his tweet was: a lot of big IPOs are expected to list soon, and he shows a list of what they are. Ready for this? Mm-hmm. Companies like Stripe with a proposed $100 billion valuation. Things like Instacart with a $39 billion valuation. We're talking things like Impossible Foods, $10 billion. Chime Financial, $30 billion. Plaid, $13 billion. Nerd Wallet, $5 Nerd billion. Wallet. Wow. Better. Dot com, $8 billion. Fresh Market, $1 billion. Reddit, $15 billion, and so forth. Why am I highlighting this? This is not bearish. If you're going to bring to market such large entities, they wouldn't be coming into the market if the market was bad. And coming off of a poor September like we saw, and this is on the horizon, mm-hmm. this is not bearish. Yeah, it's interesting because I think we, you know, before, I can't remember exactly what it was, but was it like right around um, COVID where you had a bunch of those companies go public? Oh, yeah. Was that the last time that we had like a big like IPO boom? Oh, yeah. And look what the market did. It went nuts. Yeah. Not, I'm not saying that's the reason it did, but just sure. the timing is yeah. a little suspect. The reason I just bring it up in my opinion, and again, I think the IPO market is a good barometer of risk appetite in the market, and you don't have this much in the queue and be bearish on the market. My two cents. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Over the next quarter and early 2022, it looks like. A lot of names. Yeah. So I'll send it back to you for the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah. Um, So this one was written by Roxanne Alexander, who's a CFP, uh, and it's titled, Should I Buy or Lease a Car? And I feel like this is always a really hot topic, and people have um, their really strong opinions on this. And, for example, my dad will go to his grave arguing the point that you should always buy a car and not lease it. It's just like one of his like principles and he'll argue with you to the day you die about it. Right. So I feel like, (laughs) I feel like this is one of those that's like, you're either on one side or the other and there's no in between. Okay. I can't wait for this one. (laughs) It's going to be great. So would it be even better if we had Jerry on this section as well? Yeah, I'll have to ask, see if his opinion changed this weekend at my brother's wedding. Um, I will ask him myself as well. (laughs) Um, So, she said, should your, or excuse me, should you buy your next car new or used? I made a rough calculation a few years ago, and the conclusion was whether you bought or leased the exact same car, you would likely break even at about the three-year mark. Before that point, you may spend less on a lease, but after that, you'd tend to come out ahead by buying. Why? Because the lease payments take into account the big depreciation hit you experience with any car, which is highest in the first two to three years. If you lease, you are still paying for the depreciation. Before I move on, can you just explain to people what depreciation is? Yes. So if you were to buy a car, the minute you pull off that lot, the difference is, is what someone else is going to be willing to pay for that car. Mm-hmm. And since they didn't get it brand spanking new with no miles. 10 miles yeah. on it, you know, you're instantly, you tend to walk away with at least down 10, 15% the minute you pull off that lot. Mm-hmm. 
And then as you put miles on there, you're competing with new cars at that point, the first couple of years. And so that's where you, as your article's indicating, the peak or the majority of the depreciation will come in the first three years. Right. Um, and she says, for example, if you buy a car with $50,000 cash, after three years, you will be able to sell it for, say, 30000 which means you spent 20000 owning the car for those three years. If you lease the car, your three years worth of lease payments will likely be very close to the same 20000 due to the depreciation factor, which Matt just explained. If you buy and keep the car longer than that, it continues to depreciate, but at a declining rate over time. So owning the same car for six years is then cheaper than leasing for six years. The break-even point is around three years. So one way to save is to buy a two- to three-year-old car that has already taken the initial depreciation hit, keep it for seven to ten years, and hope the repairs are not expensive. That makes sense to me. Uh, what else to consider? Do you want to pay cash or finance? I don't want to beat a dead horse here. And I think people know our stance on that, but if you have 50,000 sitting in cash earning 1%, but your loan would be at 6%, it may make sense to pay cash. If the 50,000 is all you have in emergency savings, you may not want to tie up funds in a depreciating asset and prefer to go the finance route, especially if you're still working. If your 50,000 is invested in the equity market, and you expect a 7% return or more over time, you may prefer to finance and leave your money to grow. Another important aspect for retired clients, and this is big, is if your money is all in an IRA or other retirement accounts, taking out a $50,000 lump sum to buy a car may actually be a $70,000 withdrawal once you factor in taxes and may push you into a higher tax bracket for that year. And could affect your Medicare. Yep. Yeah. Your Medicare premiums. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, th again, this is just a great point that usually is not brought up. But, you know, f in my opinion, at today's low interest rates, financing could save retirees on taxes. Agreed. Just throwing it out there. Agreed. Uh, maintenance and depreciation costs. Um, if you're buying a car, you want to check into what is covered under the warranty and for how long anything not covered would be your responsibility as a extra expense. Another point to consider is that if you have an accident with your car you own, when you try to resell it, you're going to get a lower value for it. Some insurance policies offer coverage for this possibility. Before choosing a car, check out resale values for the type of car so when you're ready to sell, you will have an idea on the future valuation. In order to get a sense of how much a car costs, TrueCar.com or Edmunds.com are great tools. TrueCar aggregates all the new or used cars in the area based upon your factors you determine, make, year, model, color, etc. Moving on to leasing, lease commitments. If you tend to keep cars for a long time, purchasing may be the way to yeah, excuse me. If you tend to keep cars for a long time, purchasing may be the way to go. But if a shiny new toy every few years is your thing, you might want to look into leasing. If you believe your circumstances may change, such as a new baby on the way, elderly parents coming to live with you, or a future move from a summer climate to a winter climate, leasing provides more flexibility since you are not committed to the car for more than four years. There's usually an upfront cost to leasing, which is an amount due at signing. This lump sum usually reduces your monthly payments and may be required depending on your credit. Some dealers offer zero down, but all this does is increase your monthly payments. It's all a numbers game. A higher down payment means lower monthly payments and vice versa, just like anything else in life. Yep. 
Um, and again, this gets into more than just, I think, the financial decision behind this, because there's some people that really, really, really like getting a new car every two to three years. And if that's something that's important to you, then go ahead and lease it. Even if it doesn't make total financial sense, then go ahead and do it. Sometimes it doesn't have to. No, that's right. That's right. And and that's one of the things, again, with what we try to discuss on this podcast is that not everything has to make make sense. You know, I think too many people are so focused on what retirement's going to look like for them that they forget to still enjoy themselves now. Yeah, the, the post about ignoring that $4 cup of coffee affecting your retirement is ludicrous Dead. to me. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's going away, I think. Yeah. Um, some brands have scheduled maintenance included, uh, which can be quite convenient. However, there are also several coverages such as tire protection and dent and scratch insurance that you can buy that will increase your lease payment. Most standard leases offer $10,000 mile limits per year. If you drive more than 10,000 miles, this will also increase your payments on the front end or on the back end. When you return the car, you'll be required to pay for the extra miles, which I had to do once. Yes. So if you drive more than 15,000 miles annually, purchasing a car may be cheaper for you. And if you are driving 25,000 25, miles a year, this can get restrictive and expensive. Keep in mind, even on a purchased car, the increased mileage will fetch you a lower sales price when you are ready to sell. So again, if you're someone that's going to struggle to stay under that ten or even $12,000 range, you've got to consider buying i think you talk about the mileage yeah the mileage because yeah. you pay for that overage correct right correct and it can be sizable like 25 cents 30 cents a mile it can get it can get pricey yeah exactly um there are some companies websites that will allow you to lease a car on a month-to-month basis which may be beneficial depending on your circumstance if you have to terminate your lease early swap a lease is a useful website that i have used several times in the past and found very efficient however not all car brands are supported and I can personally say I've used Swapalease in the past and I have nothing but good things to say about it. Minimal headaches, pretty easy transfer, transferring the lease. Um, I think I got a car that was shipped up from Florida and then, yeah, I think it was from Florida. Um, but again, if you're in a pinch and you just need something to get you by for the next three, four five months. Sure. It's a really good website that's relatively affordable. Sure. Um to to make that happen so yeah. I, I did that and i would totally recommend if people are in a position where they need a short term car to do it yeah or if you're still trying to figure out what you want what you want and you want to drive something for a while right or if your lease is up and you know you want to get the car that's coming out in six months but you need something but in you meantime. need something until then then go ahead and do this but i would encourage people to get on this a couple of months before your lease is actually it takes some time over I did not do that, so I learned from this mistake. So don't wait to the last minute to do this because it does take time to transfer the lease. Yeah. Um, lastly, if you own uh, your own business and can use lease payments or mileage allowance as a tax write-off, this may be another factor to consider. So I, 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 got, a, I got a viewpoint. Okay. I'm going to share this with Jerry, too, on uh, this weekend. <laughs> and again, uh, for listeners, Jerry is, is Mark's father. Um, 20 years ago. It was a hassle to sell a car. You either had to post it in the newspaper and do a private transaction, or you had to go to a dealership and do the whole trade-in dance, okay? 
And I think back then, Mark, it was easier for people to lease a car, turn it back in and just get whatever else they wanted. Mm -hmm. You fast forward two decades, you now have these entities like Carvana, CarMax, where you don't have to buy anything from them and they'll give you a relatively fair price mm -hmm. for the car. Yeah. And you're in and out sometimes in less than 30 minutes. Yeah. And I've heard stories that, you know, they look up, you know, people look up what the value is on you know Kelly Blue Book or True Car or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they have Carvana come out and look at it and give them a price. And sometimes it's pretty dang close. It sure for is. For the ease. It, to for do the that. ease. They come and pick it up. You don't have to take it anywhere. So I'm going to argue, and this is what my household has switched to. We now buy exclusively. Mm-hmm. Because the convenience of if we wanted to sell is so prevalent now. And I think that the money you're getting for the car is very fair. Mm -hmm. That the need to lease, at least for my household, is no longer there. Yeah. And there's you can put a price tag on convenience, right? You can. And I think that is why I would argue a lot of people, like myself, you know, in the 2000s were leasing rather than buying. And now with a lot of these technology and a lot of these newer companies offering fair prices, I don't see the need to lease anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Just giving you my two cents. And we'll see what Jerry has to say about this. Yeah. yeah I'll, see I'll report back say. at the end of next week's podcast. <laughs> um, that's all that we had on the agenda today. So anything else before we wrap up for the week? Um, listeners and viewers, we are going to be entering Q3 earnings season. And what that means is, is um, the middle and end of October a bulk of publicly traded companies are going to be informing their shareholders about their earnings for the third quarter for mm -hmm. July, August, and September. And it'll be very interesting to see if that starts to change the narrative in the market. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to episode 118 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We will see you all back here next week. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.
achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.